Okay, I'm here to introduce our, our speaker, and, and our, our speaker today is actually one of the pastors on our pastoral staff. And many of you know Pastor Brad Lagos. What you may not know is that uh, Brad recently was uh, named by the Northwest Indiana Times as one of the top uh, 20 leaders in Northwest Indiana under the age of 40. And I have here in my hand a whole uh, publication where they highlighted each of these uh, 20 individuals. And if you turn to page 17, here we have listed Brad Lagos, age 37. So he just snuck in, barely snuck in, <laughs> under the age of 40. It's a good thing you got it this year because, boy... Uh, you're almost old, Brad. Anyway, it says here, pastor of small groups at Bethel Church, faith is his motivation. Lagos leads through outreach to small groups. And there was a whole article here. You might have seen uh, this same article was in uh, the paper this week featuring uh, Pastor Brad. So we are blessed to have on our pastoral team uh, a man of his quality, and he has been here for a number of years, and we have been blessed by Brad's ministry here in the leadership and the organization of our small group ministry, but he does much more than that uh, around here and gives leadership in so many different ways, and I am, I just want to say I am blessed by his ministry to me and his friendship. And so I just am so delighted to introduce our speaker today, one of the top 20 leaders in Northwest Indiana under the age of 40, Pastor Brad Lagos. Come on up, Brad. <laughs> I told Steve just now it was easier the second time bearing that. He surprised me with that first service uh, just a little bit ago, and people always ask me, well, what's a, how cool is that? What do you think about that? And my response is, well, it's awkward. <laughs> um, that's my response because, you know, I hope you're like me. The reason why we serve and the reason why we try to bless others is not so we get accolades, but so that God is glorified. And so uh, any any whatever acknowledgement I receive, it's, it's ultimately needs to be directed to the Lord and, and His work, and I just strive to be, be a vessel in that. Steve loves to make a big deal of that <clears throat> because he just wishes he was still under 40. <laughs> so, but anyways, he may be uh, a little older and wiser, but I got a few more years on marriage on him, so... We'll, we'll help each other uh, both ways there. Well, let, let's, get, uh, let's get right into our uh, time here today. We're on our third week of our Blueprints series, which is really a, a series meant to focus on the core distinctives and values here of Bethel. And uh, as you know, we've structured this series really around the analogy of a home and the different parts of a, a home. And so last week, or a few weeks ago, we talked about the foundation of a home within the church. What does that need to be? It ought to be Christ. The church ought to be built on Jesus Christ. And then last week, we talked about the living room, which is really a metaphor for worship. And so today, our goal is to examine the family room, which will really be a picture of fellowship. And I imagine all of you have within your home, whether it is an apartment or a duplex or a condo or a single family home or whatever, you all have some kind of primary living space. 
some kind of family room of sorts. And I'd like to show you a picture of the family room in the Lagos household. So here it is. Here's a picture of the Lagos household family room there. Looks kind of normal, maybe. We got, you know, the couches and the TV, and you see actually over on the side lots of toys on shelves there. That's because we have uh, three young children in my house. Elena is six, Liana is four, and Rylan is one and a half. And so we need to keep them in- entertained, which means we need lots of toys kind of at easy access, just right there within reach. But being totally honest with you, our family room uh, doesn't always look like this. I have three young kids, remember, and as much as Jessica and I would like to keep our family room looking this way, uh, we fail at that because more commonly it actually looks like this. We can change the picture. There we go. That's the more common look of the Lagos uh, living room there. I'm sure none of you can relate to me here, possibly, can you? I'm sure none of you can because, you know, I make the rounds and I visit some of your homes, and it seems to me every time I step into one, it's also very spotless and clean, so nicely put away. It's like you people live in a museum or something. Everything's like glued down, and the couch cushions are stitched in place, either that or Mary Poppins must live with you, because everything's just always so nice and neat and perfect, never dirty, never dusty, never messy, at least when I stop by, and I leave your home sometimes feeling like an abject human failure, like how neat they keep their homes. Although something tells me if I happen to stop by unannounced at just the right time, especially if you have young kids, there are days I might come across an utter disaster like this. Am I right? I think I'm absolutely right. Because all of our family rooms sometimes get messy like this, don't they? Why is that? Because they're places where we live, usually more than any other place in our home. It's where we spend our time. It's where we interact with one another. It's where we share loving moments and joyful experiences. It's where sometimes where we work through the difficult things in life. It's a place where things sometimes get messy. The messes aren't always, though, a bad thing. Sometimes the messes are just an indication of a vibrant, healthy family that is doing a lot of things together. And so simply put, I think a healthy family ought to have a family room that looks lived in. I think this one here certainly qualifies. Might look more like a daycare center than a family room, but it definitely looks lived in, doesn't it? And I hope your family room gets a lot of good use as well. It's not just some kind of cold, formal museum because healthy families do life together. In Bethel Church, we are a family, and we likewise need to do life together. We need to gather together in our family room, so to speak, as a church to interact, to share things, to laugh, to cry together, to make some messes, to grow together, to love each other. Because healthy families and healthy churches, they permeate with love. And that love causes people to come together. It causes us to want to spend time with one another. It causes us to have expressions of relational love with each other. And which in the church is something that we typically call fellowship. And the goal I have for us today is to really hopefully paint a picture, help us understand what biblical fellowship is. Today, what I'm calling family room fellowship, to paint a picture of what really the family rooms in our church ought to look like as we interact with and relate to and care for, fellowship with, simply love one another. And unfortunately, the word fellowship, I think it is commonly misunderstood today, especially in the church. I've been in churches where fellowship means you know, basically, hey, we greet somebody in the service and should extend the hand of fellowship and shake their hand. Or maybe when we welcome new people who are coming to the church, that's, that's fellowship. Or fellowship is something we do after the weekend service when we go out to lunch or we gather over cookies and punch. 
You know, for many people, fellowship is just kind of that nice sense of friendliness and joviality and, 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 and niceness of small talk, and it's something that happens whenever two important things in our, in our lives meet, friendly conversation and food, right? You put those two things together, conversation, food, boom, in the church you got Christian fellowship. Sometimes what people think. Some people think that fellowship is something that just revolves around special activities or social interests. So you have a ladies' scrapbooking club or a men's basketball game, and as long as most of the people participating in those things, as long as most of them are Christians, well, hey, then that's fellowship. Or some people think that fellowship, a relationship is full of fellowship if, if those people really don't do certain things together. So we don't drink, we don't cuss, we don't smoke, don't chew, don't date girls who do, you know, something like that. It's fellowship as long as certain worldly, potentially destructive things aren't done. I've got news for you. Fellowship is so much more than those things. Fellowship is not so much the view of, hey, we hang out and we're Christians and we don't do these things, so we have great fellowship, or, hey, we're Christians, we get together and we have all these fun social events together, so we have great fellowship. You know, those things may be the beginning of fellowship, but they're certainly not the full expression of it. And if we think that that's essentially what Christian fellowship is, we misunderstand the concept entirely. Fellowship is a much deeper, much richer word. And what I'd like to do today is paint a picture, hopefully, a portrait for you of what real biblical fellowship is, how we ought to relate to one another, particularly in the family rooms of our lives. And so let's begin by looking at a passage in God's Word from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. This passage demonstrates very clearly, I think, many aspects of true Christian fellowship. We've preached on this text many times from this fall, but even just recently this summer uh, as we went through our Acts series, but I want to turn to it again because it is such a helpful text for this this subject. And first, let me share the context of this passage, Acts chapter 2. This is at the Genesis, the very beginning of the early church, and Jesus has now just been risen. He's just gone into heaven, and uh, Pentecost has just happened. The Holy Spirit has come and indwelt the believers, and Peter has just given his first sermon. Immediately afterwards, there were 3,000 conversions. And so, Spirit comes, Peter preaches, boom, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Before that moment, there are only about 120 believers. So immediately in one day, 120 people goes to over 3,000. That's a growth of 2,500%. That's massive. That's an incredible increase of people. It'd be like, I say we roughly have maybe 600 people here or so right now. That would be like if all of a sudden overnight, this group of people in this room right now turned into like... 15, 16,000 people. That would be an incredible change, wouldn't it? Just imagine the excitement and the momentum that we have. If all of a sudden our group multiplied by 2,500%, it would be incredible. So obviously there's a lot of excitement happening here in the early church. There's a lot of momentum. Things were happening. And with that, we come then to the account beginning in verse 42, which says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." Now, these verses, they give us many insights into what life must have been like for these early believers, and clearly the emphasis of the text here, it is on fellowship. Twice, the text mentions the word together. 
There's an emphasis on relationships and connectivity and interactions. We see here that the early church, it was serious about its relationships because a fundamental characteristic of these early believers is that they just did things together. But what was that togetherness like? Verse 46 demonstrates that when the early church gathered, they did it in two ways. They gathered in uh, the temple and they also gathered in homes. And so from day one, you see the early church gathering for corporate worship services, but also in smaller groups, surely in the equivalent of, of their family rooms of the day, which tells us actually one very important thing about how they viewed their Christianity. They knew that the corporate worship gatherings, they weren't enough. They needed more time to connect with one another on a much deeper, much more personal way. And so they gathered in homes and small groups to really experience close fellowship with each other. See, so you knew these Christians, they knew the, these Christians knew that experiencing fellowship in a large group setting was just hard to do. You needed to be in a smaller group of people to really fully experience them. This is, this is why large churches today so commonly have small group ministries, to provide a place where the people of that church can experience real, deep, meaningful fellowship. But what does true biblical fellowship look like? I mean, it clearly involves being in relationship with one another. But how ought those relationships look? How ought they function? Well, let's kind of look at the model that we see here from the early believers. And in particular, as we look at Acts chapter 2, we're going to see four characteristics of what their fellowship looked like. So four characteristics of their biblical fellowship. And the first is this. Fellowship begins when believers share a spirit of friendship. It begins when believers share a spirit of friendship. These first Christians, they had a real spirit of friendship between them. How do I know this? Well, they spent lots of time together. They did lots of activities together, which included corporate worship services and gathering together in homes, having meals. Look at, look at verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice the frequency by which they gathered. It says they met day by day, or some translations say every day. So the fact that these people spent so much time together it leads me to believe that they were probably good friends. And that's supported by the attitudes that they had towards one another. Verse 46 also says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So as they did these things, they clearly enjoyed doing so. And you get the sense from these passages that, that these people, they liked each other. It seems to be an authentic spirit of friendship here, that, that the friendship was enjoyable. When they met, they were glad, and you, uh, you have every reason to believe that their friendship was authentic too, that when they, when they gathered, they were uh, sincere and real and genuine with one another. And if we want our churches to be about fellowship, one thing we need is enjoyable, authentic friendship taking place within our congregation. So that when you walk through these doors, when you head off to your small group, hopefully you're meeting with people who are, in a sense, part of your extended family, people who love you and who support you, people whom you enjoy. Hopefully they enjoy you. A simple friendship, it just doesn't happen automatically, does it? It takes some intentionality. And there's two types of people here. There's people who already have their pretty good network, relationship, and friendship already established within our congregation. There's people who are coming here who really don't have hardly any of that. So let me speak to those of you who are here who already kind of have that network set up. We all have a tendency to kind of get in our little circle of friends, right, and be content with that. But if God has established for you already a collection of good friendships here, you'd remember that, that there are others here who, are, who don't have that, and they are desperately looking for it. They're so eager for it. And so we need to be intentional here, all of us, to reach out and to befriend people. We need to work at building friendships here because we all have a need, of, need for friendship. 
And so let's not just be selfish and content in our own little circle. We must always be seeking to expand it, always trying to meet people and to, and to go out to lunch or to just greet people around here, strike up a conversation. Not really for our sake, but certainly for the sake of those people who are, might be unconnected. You never know what God might do uh, in your life or another person's life. If you just kind of strike up a conversation and see where that goes. We need to be pursuing friendship with one another especially those of us who are connected, pursuing those people, looking for those people who presently are looking for it, who haven't found it. So that's one characteristic of friendship, a real sense of uh, a fellowship, a real sense of glad and authentic friendship, an intentional outreach within the community of believers to make friends with the people who are around us. So that's a first. Here's a second. Fellowship involves Christian expressions of giving and sacrifice. Look at verse 44 and 45. To see fellowship involves Christian expressions of giving and sacrifice. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is a remarkable picture, isn't it? And here, what do we see here? We see the early Christians freely sharing their things, even selling their possessions and proceeds to those in their midst who had need. So if someone needed something, it was lent. If someone was hard up on for money, money was raised, cash was given to them, provide, their, provide them with help. The early church, the people there, they had an incredible willingness to give and to serve and to sacrifice for one another. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions. They distributed their proceeds to whoever had need. They denied themselves and surrendered their own comforts for the benefits of others. This is a beautiful picture of acts of love and service that ought to be commonplace within the church. Now, I don't think what we see here is a, a picture of, a, of communism or commune, so to speak, like where you get the church together and everybody just kind of throws all their stuff into a pot in the middle and it's all like everything is shared and everything is kind of collaboratively owned. That's not really the picture here. The text doesn't present a situation like that. This is not um, Jesus People USA. You know what I'm talking about? Japuza. Jesus People USA, what this place is, you've heard of it. It's basically a Christian commune in downtown Chicago. It's a pretty big deal. There's, there's hundreds of people there, and, and it's, it's, a, it's actually a great thing in many ways. But it, it's, it's, this, it's this collaboration, this, this community of people that is basically a commune. They kind of share everything. And it's kind of got this retro 60s kind of hippie kind of vibe, you know, combined with a kind of a modern alternative grunge kind of thing going on. It's kind of like, hey, man, we're a family. Right, we share everything except toothbrushes and underwear. And, and, you know, some of us work, some of us take care of the kids, and these people cook meals, and we all just live together and love Jesus. I mean, that's kind of the picture of Japuzan. You know, you can go do that if you want. That's not what this text is mandating, that lifestyle. The Acts is clear that, Christian ownership, that private ownership continued. But even within that, people... They had this spirit, this willingness to be free and to share and to give up their things for those individuals who were in real need. And why did the early church live this way? Why did they do such, such, have such radical sharing? I'll tell you why. It's because they valued one another more than they valued their stuff. And that led them to take care of each other. So when there was a need in their community, they all worked together to help meet that need, even to the point of great personal sacrifice. Godly relationships produce a heart of giving and sacrifice, and that should result in actions of love and service to each other. Real fellowship happens just simply when we help each other out. So what does that look like for us here at this church? It means that if someone is sick, we go to them, and we care for them. We bring them meals. We visit them in the hospital. 
We, we mow their lawn. We clean their house. Take care of their kids. We pray for them. It means that if someone is in financial need, we try to help them. We come up with money to alleviate the crisis. We give them gifts. We donate things that we don't need anymore to people who really do. It means that if somebody needs a place to live and we have one, we offer it to them. If somebody's going on a missions trip, we, we support them. If somebody needs help moving or painting their house or they need a babysitter, we do our best to help each other in these ways through service and prayer and encouragement and giving and sacrifice. I met a woman after the service Saturday night who said, I, I really need to get plugged in because I just have this need. And she started tearing up and shared with me how just a couple months ago her, her husband just left her and abandoned her. And tears were streaming down her face all the way off her chin. And I just said, you know, we want to be a church that's here for you. We want to be a church, a congregation that's going to help you in this because that's what God has called us to do. And so how are you doing at this? When was the last time you made a real sacrifice for somebody outside of an immediate family member? What kind of reputation do you have around here, especially amongst the circles of people that know you, you well? Are you the kind of person that everyone knows, hey, I can count on this person if there's a crisis or a need? Do people see you as having a clear heart of giving and of sacrifice? What kind of friend are you in that way? I mean, how much sacrificial compassion do you also have for the people around here that you might not even know, but you get a sense that there's a need? Does your heart prick? with a burden for that person? You know, if you can think of some stories where you have responded sacrificially and helped someone out in a great way, well, that probably means you're living a sacrificial, self-giving life. But if you have a hard time thinking of such things, that might be an indication that perhaps you need to grow in this area. Because real fellowship involves Christian expressions of giving and of sacrifice. That's an important characteristic of it. And as a church, I think we need to resolve to do that better, don't we? We absolutely do. There ought not to be anyone in need within our midst because we're caring for one another. But there's another third important characteristic of fellowship that I think is, it might be perhaps, most critical of all, and that's this, that true fellowship happens when believers have a focus on God together. It happens when believers have a focus on God together. Verse 42 says, and they, the early church believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so notice the things these people did with one another. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, which means that they were uh, devoted to learning and studying about truth. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which is really a picture of, of communion and of remembering Christ and worship. It says that they were devoted to the prayers, which certainly means that they probably were praying for one another, but actually says the prayers. It probably is referring to that they were, voted, they were devoted to certain, reciting certain creeds or um, psalms or songs together, something very akin to our modern worship. When in unison, they declared truth to God. And what do all these things have in common? They all have an upward focus, don't they? They all have a focus on God, and we can reason Therefore, that our Christian relationships, they ought to have this kind of focus too. And this entire text, it demonstrates it, that when these people gathered together, they clearly had a spiritual focus. And in addition to what we see in verse 42, uh, verse 46 says that they, they met in the temple courts, presumably for worship. Verse 47 says that they praised God together. And so here's the point. These people 
They've had a focus, an incredible focus on God together. When they met, they were focused on teaching and on truth and on communion and remembering Christ and on prayer and on worship. And so when they gathered together, they did the things of God together. Their times were not just spent sitting around talking about the latest news in one another's lives or how their job was going or complaining how the Roman government was failing them. When they gathered together, they were focused on God together. And from this, what do we learn about their fellowship? We learn that fellowship happens when believers take their horizontal relationships and they use them to pursue a vertical relationship with God. Fellowship happens when through our relationships and our friendships, we experience meaningful spiritual things together. It happens when we share together the experiences of the Christian life. So fellowship is not just about relating to one another on a social basis. It's about relating to one another on a spiritual basis. That's just all throughout this text right here. And when we do this, when we really have a focus on God together, what should be the result of our fellowship? What should be the result of our fellowship? When we really get together and we focus on God together, the result result should be growth. True fellowship results in spiritual growth. We see that in verse 47, says that, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as these people gathered together and pursued God together, God just increased it. It surely increased the depth of their own spiritual vitality, but it brought more and more people to the faith, and the church grew. God changed the church in growth, and he changed the people in growth. And we all know that God is in this business. He's in the business of change, isn't he? He wants to change us. He wants to change our congregation to be more pure, to be more holy, to be more righteous. He wants to change us in justice and in mercy and compassion and faithfulness and love. Ephesians 5 Starting in verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. God wants us to change to be more like him. And most specifically, he wants us to change so that we imitate Jesus. So that we all walk like Jesus did. So that we all love like Jesus loved. It's a high calling, isn't it? So that when the people of the world Look out and they look at our church. They look at the people here. You know what they ought to see? You know what Bethel Church ought to look like? It ought to look like a bunch of little Jesuses running around. That's what it ought to look like. Because like, we're all trying to imitate him. We're all trying to look like him. Now I've got, as I said, several little kids. And what a kids, one thing kids like to do is they like to imitate their heroes. Right? And who are the, who are the big heroes of the day? Batman, Spider-Man, the Disney princesses. Have you noticed that the Disney princesses, like over the past five years, are like everywhere? I go to Lowe's and there's the Cinderella gardening set. And the princess stuff is just like everywhere. And of course, I got two young girls, so they've just like clued in on that. And, and they are all about the Disney princess stuff. So they got the princess dress-up clothes. And they put those things on all the time. And they got these shoes that they wear that make so much stinking noise when they walk around in the kitchen. And they just love, oh, I'm a princess. And, and they just love pretending to be like the princess. And, I, of course, then I come home from work and then, oh, the prince is home. And let's go to the ball. And I will dance with Cinderella plays. And, you know, we just have this whole princess pretend time quite a bit. Because kids love to pretend to be their heroes, so to speak. They, they walk like them, they talk like them, they try to dress like them, make sound effects like them. And they do it with such earnestness and such, such desire. But if only we could approach imitating Jesus 
with such interest and desire. Because Jesus is our hero. And we all ought to be constantly striving to imitate him. Problem is we're all in progress with this, aren't we? We're all trying to, none of us have this imitating Jesus thing down very well, yet we all have a long way to go. But that's the reason why we have this place, this building, this church, this congregation, so that we can gather together and that when we meet here through our fellowship with one another, we become more like him. Become better imitators of Christ. Paul clearly said that this is the purpose of his ministry when he wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul wanted his ministry to make everyone mature, to become mature little Jesuses. People who are changed into the image of Christ. We call this process sanctification. It is a process that each and every one of us should be most serious about. Because that's our goal. Our goal is to be changed into Christ's likeness. Become more like Him. And this, is, this process, this goal of sanctification is something that we are very serious about here at Bethel. Which means that we must constantly, whenever we gather, seek to be growing together. Real Christianity does not happen in isolation. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We all need to spend time in the family room of life together. Because this transformation, it happens in conjunction with other believers. Our relationships are an incredible resource that God has given us to help us grow, to help us change, to imitate Christ, to run this Christian race well. In fact, I think we ought to consider our relationships as great treasures that we have stewardship over. And we talk about Christian stewardship in all kinds of ways. We talk about we have stewardship of our, our money and of our time and our abilities and opportunities to grow God's kingdom and serve the Lord. And we also have stewardship of our relationships. And we ought not, just as we ought not squander our treasure or our time or our talents for God's purposes, so too ought we not squander our relationships. We ought to put our relationships to good use. And allow them to be a refining, purifying, God-glorifying aspect of our lives. Gary Thomas is a, a popular Christian author, and he has, has written much about the relationship of marriage. And in doing so, he has said that the point of the marriage relationship is not so much to make us happy, but to make us holy. And it seems to me that this way of thinking, it just doesn't reply to the marriage relationship, but to all Christian relationships as well. That God has given believers, that he's given us one another, not just to make us happy, well, that, that's a part, but ultimately, ultimately to make us holy, make us more like Christ. The problem is we often allow relationships to be filled with things like conflict, lack of forgiveness, grace, or we view our relationships in a very selfish way. Like, what can I get out of these people? How can these people make me happy? We may even become totally impassive about certain people. I could care less about those people. Those people are kind of weird. I want nothing to do with them. I really don't like any of them. Listen, those attitudes have no place within the church. Relationships ought to be things that we treasure, that we cherish, that God uses to build us up and to make us more holy instead of distractions that the devil uses to get a foothold in our life. And I think it's ironic that one of these things that God has given us, our relationships, uh, that the Holy Spirit so often uses to, to build people up, it's also something that the enemy so often uses to bring people down. Sometimes the enemy causes harm 
to our fellowship in more subtle ways by just making us lazy in our fellowship. So that when we gather, we, we just focus on just kind of hanging out and being social and, and not at all about transformation or doing the things of God together. We get together with other, other Christians, but our conversation, they're not really much different than the conversations we might have with unbelievers. So we talk about the Bears game or our jobs or what our kids are doing or who's going to be president next. I'm sure those conversations, they might not be as crass, but they're also not deeply focused on the things of God. So instead, when we gather, it ought primarily not to meet just a social need. It ought to, meet to, be, it ought to be meeting to be, meet a spiritual need. Therefore, when we hang out and we spend time together, we need to do things like really settle down and have deep and intimate, close times of prayer. Times when we really open God's word and talk about truth, theology. We need to bring God more into our conversation so that our time together, it feels very different than the time we might have with unbelievers. And when we do this, we have this kind of focused time in our fellowship. God will bring about spiritual growth in us. He will use that time to conform us more into the likeness of Christ. So how do we do that, though? Just specifically, practically, how do, we, how do Christians pursue spiritual growth through Christian fellowship? Just practically, what do we do? How do we, how do we get this to happen in our relationships? The Bible is full of many specific ways that we ought to have fellowship. In fact, dozens of times in Scripture we see the phrase, one another, which is preceded by um, just a, a leading verb. So you see, uh, serve one another, encourage one another, do good to one another, admonish one another, be kind to one another, care for one another, build one another up, pray for one another, love one another. We call these phrases the one another's of Scripture, and they occur more than 70 times in the New Testament, and they're written to the church as a whole, to all of us. Therefore, the, the church ought to be filled with people who are doing these kind of things. If we're not, we're living in disobedience to God's Word. And why would God want His people to do these one another's, all these different things? Because living out these one another's of Scripture, it promotes within us spiritual growth. How do we pursue spiritual growth? By living out the one another's of Scripture together. Perhaps one of the best examples of a one another is Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, which says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, this is a great text that I think commands Christian fellowship. The emphasis here is clearly on fellowship. It says, hey, let's not give up meeting together. We need to be meeting together. And notice the purpose behind these meetings. It's, it's growth. It says we're trying to get each other to grow in love and good deeds, which is really a picture of we're trying to grow in our love and our character and also our good deeds, the outward expressions of righteousness in our life. And so fellowship aims to produce. We need to get together to produce this kind of spiritual growth. And I love how the NIV translates this verse when it says, spur one another on. Other translations say provoke or to prod. And... It, is this spurring, or think of a cattle prod, is that a, is that a pleasant picture to you? I mean, who, some of us here, I'm sure, have ridden a horse, right? And how do you get a horse to move? The way you get a horse to move is you just kind of kick it in the side, right? You get a little jab there. And back in the old days and country western times, what do cowboys wear on the back of their boots? They put on spurs, right? Those jagged, little metal discs, they just kind of were on their, the back of their 
boots there so that when the cowboy walked in the saloon, they heard the chink, chink, chink. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, somebody cool just arrived. (laughs) What was the purpose of those things? It's to jab him into the side of the horse. What happened when the horse got that jab? It would go. And that's really the metaphor here in this text. That sometimes we need to be poking and prodding, pushing each other to go and to change. Is spurring a pleasant picture? Certainly not. Sometimes fellowship, it hurts. It certainly is sometimes uncomfortable. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Sometimes it helps, it hurts to help us to grow because sometimes we have to do some difficult things. Consider these other often and conveniently forgotten one another commands in Scripture. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another. When was the last time you did that with somebody? Just kind of said to a friend, hey, you know what, I'm really failing the Lord in this area of my life. When was the last time you did that? God's Word says that you should. Why? Because confession is one of those things that produces spiritual growth and change. Or Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish one another. In other words, exhort or instruct, challenge each other. This is not just what pastors are to do from the pulpit. This is something we're all to do in all of our relationships. We're supposed to exhort each other to change and help each other, teach each other to change and challenge each other. It's calling out sin, warning about the consequences of actions, saying, hey, 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 you're going to mess things up if you keep doing that. It's being a voice of wisdom in each other's lives. That's admonishing, and that's hard to do. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.11, which says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, doing everything that we can to help each other build up to become more like Christ. In Family Room Fellowship, it's all about these one another's. We need to be in a relational context for these things to happen so that if we want to model the type of fellowship given here at the early church, we need to gather together in smaller groups, not just to enjoy each other, but to experience a real focus on God and on growth together. And when we do that, we will see real change and transformation take place. So confession needs to happen. We need to gather with some people and get our dirty laundry out there on the table, probably just in single gender groups, but so that we can identify ways that we can help each other grow. We really need to challenge and encourage and exhort and admonish one another, saying, hey, get your acting gear, will you? Be more like Christ. Yo, you're going to mess things up if you keep living that way. Think about the consequences of your actions. Don't you know that God's word tells you to do this? You know, I love you. Maybe you need to grow in this way. Let me help you. That's speaking the truth in love. And we need to build each other up. How do we do this? Well, all sorts of ways. One is through areas of accountability. So for an example, let's say that you're struggling, struggling finding time for prayer and personal devotion to the Lord. And maybe you share that with somebody, say, I really want to be more disciplined in, in reading God's Word and in prayer time, having a, a time carved out of my schedule to do that. And so somebody says, I tell you what, I'm going to help you with that. I'm going to call you at 5.30 every morning. I'm going to keep calling you until you pick up the phone. And when you pick up the phone, I'm going to say, get your butt out of bed, get your face in this book and your knees in the floor. And you're going to do that every morning. I'm going to help you with that. Or maybe if you're saying, you know, I'm struggling loving my spouse and serving my spouse as you are, and you share that with somebody, that person says, you know, I'm going to send you an email every day and just say, how did you love and serve your spouse today? That's spurring one another on. Or maybe you're struggling with purity, purity on the internet. So you, find, you share that with somebody and you sign up together for like a filtery, filter content monitoring service so that you see reports of what each other is, is looking at online. That's spurring one another on. 
Of course, holding one another up in prayer. Some of the real issues of needs in our heart that need to be changed, that's spurring one another on. That's the purpose of all of our fellowship ministries here at this church. And therefore, we ought to ask a question. We come together in smaller gatherings of this church. What kind of focus do we have? Do we gather just to do fun social things together? Or do we gather to intentionally do the things of God together? To intentionally focus our times on Him and to pursue real spiritual growth, Christ-like transformation and change. To truly make every interaction that we have all about Him. So how do we do that? How do we pursue spiritual growth together? By doing the one another's of Scripture. That's one way. Or here's another way to say it. By just having frequent, friendly, and focused time together. If you look back at Acts chapter 2, we've already discussed how our fellowship ought to be focused on the things of God and how it ought to be, have a spirit of friendship and involve a heart of giving and sacrifice. But remember how frequently these early believers gathered together. It says that they gathered together every day. Every day. People gathered together very, very frequently. And sometimes, you know, I wonder how they did it. Because these people, they, they had lives too. They had a family. They had much to worry about, just like we do. They had to make ends meet. They had to provide for the kids and take care of the home. Yet somehow they found time to gather together with everyone, with their, with their Christian peers every day. Wow. I'm not suggesting we have to do that here as a church. We're living in a different culture here now. But I think we do need to wrestle with the fact that the early church experienced fellowship with one another with great, great frequency, daily frequency. And they did so despite so many pressures on their time, just like us. And why did they do it? Because it was an incredible priority for them. And what does that mean for us? means if we're going to follow the example of fellowship demonstrated here, we need to be serious about making time for one another. We need to prioritize time together, meeting priority, meeting together. It got to be a priority in our lives. Now, we can't do it every day like these early Christians, you know, probably in our culture here, but there are certainly ways that we can be in touch with one another basically every day. We have the phone, we have the internet, uh, email, we have social media now. It's a great example of ways that we can have real good daily contact. And one of the things that distresses me most about American Christianity is this. It seems like we hardly have time for one another. People in the church hardly have time for each other because the job is more important or the lawn is more important or the hobbies are more important or the TV shows, the athletic games are more important. But friends, what could be more important than what we have right here and the people here in this room? What's more important than the people here right now? These people here, they shouldn't be among the first things that you cut from your calendar. They should be among the last. Not making time for fellowship with other believers that is frequent and that is spiritually focused is something that only hurts ourselves because we fail to experience the many rich blessings that fellowship can provide. If we, want to be, we want to be serious about this here in our church. And that's why we have all of our fellowship ministries, small groups and others, to help us be the church that we see pictured here. And this is not just for us adults, by the way, I would add. It's also true for our kids as well. Listen, if you're a parent and you want your children to grow up to love the Lord, to live a godly, Christ-like life, you need to make sure that some, maybe all, most of their closest friends are Christians. You make sure that your kids, and I don't care what age they are, it could be elementary, middle school, high school, whatever. You need to make sure that your kids are experiencing genuine Christian fellowship. Friends are a powerful influence upon us, and this is especially true for youth. 
And so you have to, parents, you have to control the influences that your children's friends have upon them. There's a huge reason why we have a student ministry here. So you can bring your kids, especially those that might go to public school or something where they don't have other avenues to meet other Christian friends. You can bring them here to church so they can build their closest friendships here with other believers. This is so important, parents. This is critical. You have to make sure that your kids have good Christian friends. And it amazes me how many of our middle school, high school students whose families attend this church, they have nothing to do with our youth ministries and nothing to do with Christian school or anything. They're just out there. And, and, and those parents, they often see our youth ministries here, they just see them as, as just an option or something that, you know, they'll leave it up to the kids to decide. Or, or it grieves me when I hear of a child, their student, they can't go to any of our ministries here because they always have these athletic events or some other activity that they have to go to. And listen, parents, what's more important, that your kids make the football team or the cheerleading squad or they grow up to love Christ and live a a life of devotion to him. So if you want your children to be lifelong followers of Jesus, you have to make sure that they surround themselves with peers. It will be a godly, uplifting spiritual influence in their life. So get your kids involved in something, our youth ministry, whatever. Make sure that their closest friends are Christians or you may end up losing your kids to the world. Peership fellowship is so critical for our youth and it's critical for us as well. Make sure our friends are having a positive influence on us. And if you're a teen here, I say choose your friends wisely. Choose your friends wisely. So what is fellowship? It is a relational experience that starts with a spirit of friendship, something that happens when believers have a heart of giving and sacrifice, something that happens when believers have a focus on God and they pursue real spiritual growth together. And some Christian fellowship is really just doing life together with spiritual intentionality. It's gathering together in the family rooms of our church to do life. It might sometimes get messy, but if done right, it should always produce growth. It should always produce joy. As a community, we must be about fellowship. It's really one of the essential priorities of a healthy Christian. One of the most important things, you know, we here at Bethel, we've created a little paradigm that we hope helps communicate what we think are, are, are the important priorities for Christians. We call it our little three E paradigm. And here's really how we represent it. Our three E's, exalt, experience, engage. What we like to see is that each of these three things, they represent three different focuses of our life, three different experiences, things that we ought to be having regularly. So exalt, that is the, the experience of corporate worship and private worship as well. Our lives ought to regularly have this kind of focus on worshiping and praising and Glorifying God. Experience, that is the horizontal relationships, the biblical fellowships that we all ought to have here. And then engage, that's using your gifts and your opportunities, your time to build God's kingdom, to contribute to the the growth of the church and reaching out to others. These three things, they represent basically the priorities of a healthy Christian. And healthy Christians prioritize these three things so that they're a part of their life basically every day, certainly every week that you're regularly having experience where you're exalting God, that you're interacting on fellowship in an experiential level with other believers and you're engaging and using your gifts to serve the kingdom. If we want to be a vibrant church, if you want to be a vibrant Christian, these three things, categories, need to be a part of your life every single week. And if we did that, we would all be changed so much into Christ-likeness. And we really would be a congregation more and more of just little Jesuses running around. 
if we lived out these priorities. So, for the second priority, the experience piece, now is a wonderful time for you to take a step, if you don't currently have that, to get involved in some kind of fellowship ministry here at our church. And to help you with that, I want you to look at the seat in front of you. Look at the seat in front of you, those of you who are on the floor anyways, and I want you to all, everybody reach forward and grab this card. It should be in the, right in front of you. If you're in the balcony, they're, they're at the exits, you'll get them as you leave. Those of you down here, pull this thing out. This is basically a little card that lists all of our fellowship opportunities within the church, from small groups, men's ministry, women's ministry. On the back, you see it describing our Celebrate Recovery ministry and student ministries, Alpha Omega, college-age ministry, seniors ministry. And the point is that we have all sorts of different opportunities for you to plug in, for you to get involved, for you to build relationships with other believers, to have this type of fellowship that we're describing here today. And this little flyer, it makes it very easy. You just see the, the response. You just go online and fill out this form or send an email to this person, and we'll get you get the ball rolling and help get you plugged in. Many of you have, have expressed an interest to get involved just in the past couple of recent weeks, and we're working to connect you. We're a little bit behind in our process this year, but we're working on it, and happy to have all of you who currently aren't, aren't involved. Take a step. Make a choice to get plugged into the body life here in some way. You will be richly blessed if you do. And if you have questions about these things, we actually have two tables in the commons that are just labeled fellowship opportunities. And I'm going to be at one of those, and our director of connections and director of women's ministry will be at one of those. And we would be more than happy to talk with you about where could be your place, your fit here, where you could go to find these friendships and these relationships that will really build you up spiritually and cause you to become more like Christ. And if you are already plugged into one of these ministries, you're in a small group or some other fellowship thing here, I would encourage you, be committed to that. Prioritize it. And when you're there, strive to do your part to make that the spiritually uplifting, growing, focused place, intentional place that it needs to be. Make sure that you are focused in your fellowship circle, wherever that is, that you're focused on doing the things with God together. Let's all work together to build this deep sense of fellowship here, not just so that we can have some good friendships and have some good times, but ultimately to so become more like Jesus. That's our purpose. We're all on this journey together. So let's live like it. Let's work towards it collectively. How wonderful it is that God has given us one another to pursue this great goal. Let's do it and make the most of these incredible opportunities for spiritual growth that our relationships here provide. So to that end, would you pray with me?